You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Revived Bots is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. So there was a change, but there is also continuity. The body of Jesus came out of the tomb and appeared to the disciples in such a way that a man could put his finger in the mark of the nails in his hands. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered today. We're hearing a sermon from J. Gresham Machen. It was most likely preached in the 1920s. Hey, we got some more Patreons. 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 Good sh- shout out to Lauren and Becca for joining our Patreon team. Also, David, thank you so much. Oh, and I want to shout out uh, Chris as well for uh, upgrading his giving amount. We will be sure to get those uh, bookmarks out in the mail, bookmarks and some stickers. Be patient with this a little bit. We are waiting on an unupdated shipment to resupply our sticker supply, um, but we will have those out as soon as we can. So thank you for your patience with that. Joel, we have had Jay Gresham Machen sermons, and this will probably be the third one we've done. Uh, why do we like this guy? Why do we keep going back to him? He's not perfect, and we've gone over some of those imperfections before. But I think there's something about men who took a risk to defend the faith when no one else wanted to that makes them worth remembering. In this episode, we'll be talking about a different aspect of his faith than the ones we focused on before. If you haven't listened to those episodes, we really encourage you to go back. We kind of build off of each episode as we do them, and those other two are fantastic. But once you get, if you have, or once you get done with those and you're back, uh, this one's going to be really focused on his time serving in World War I. This was a part of his life that I had mentioned in previous episodes, but until this episode, I did not realize just how intense that portion of his life was. Yeah, whenever we do a, a revisit to someone that's been on the show before, we always do kind of like a, a summary. What's a quick, you know, a, what are the bullet points about the history of this person? He was born in 1881, J. Gresham Majin, born in 1881. He would be a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, and he served there as a New Testament professor and as an apologetics professor. You can see his uh, apologetics side really come through in the sermon that we have today. After B.B. Warfield died, Princeton definitely took a more liberal swing in its theology. And because of that, Machen left Princeton and started Westminster Theological Seminary. You know, smack dab in the middle of his life, if you know the timeline 1881 to 1937, you know there's going to be World War One. And Joel and I are actually kind of nerds on World War One. We, we listen to podcasts about World War One. That was, in fact, what got me into podcasting was Joel saying, you got to check out this podcast on World War I. <laughs> uh, so we really think this is an interesting time period. Uh, world War One is the first time all the nations from all over the world that get together and they fight across the world. They're fighting in Africa, they're fighting in Europe, they're fighting in Asia, they're all over the place basically. And it's just this massive thing. But the United States really promised to stay out of the fight. Woodrow Wilson was reelected on that promise. I'm going to keep us out of the fight in Europe. And he was, you know, both the president of the United States, but before that he was the president of Princeton. So while Machen and some other guys we've covered, Henry Van Dyke and B.B. Warfield were there, this was the president of that school and then eventually the president of the United States. But again, he was promising to keep him out of that fight. But they get into the fight in 1917. Now, we talked about Henry Van Dyke on an earlier episode, this old man who was preaching on a ship as a naval chaplain, encouraging the war effort, and Machen felt similarly called to serve, but I don't think these two guys could have had more different experiences of World War One if you had tried. Uh, 
even though he was a professor at the time, he's in his late 30s, and he was not really in any way up for the draft. He wanted to serve. He almost went with the Army, kind of driving ambulances, but he didn't want to because ambulances would also have to carry bombs and you know ammunition, and he really just wanted to you know serve as a pacifist more, so he went with the YMCA instead. Yeah, and you might think uh, of the YMCA in current day as an athletic fitness gym, right? You go to the Y and use the pool or run yeah, on the treadmills, exactly. right? But it was founded primarily as a biblical study and resource help center almost. It was unequivocally a decidedly Christian organization, and its members were on the front line of a lot of these World War I battles. They served soldiers by teaching the Bible and giving them resources to help them, almost as kind of like counselors, war counselors, on the battlefield. And so Machen thought that by serving with them, he would still you know, be contributing toward the war effort, be still contributing towards uh, his country, but without having to pick up a weapon. And, you know, it might be easy to think that Mason was out of harm's way because of this position, but he was placed in a YMCA hut. They called them huts or a canteen that uh, was on the front lines to serve tired soldiers between the shifts in the trenches. And so these these soldiers are coming off the trench uh, and going over to his hut to, to get water and to get refreshed. But he's there in the trenches on that front line. So he goes from being the professor at one of the most prestigious, you know, universities and seminaries in the world to a man selling candy, hot chocolate and tobacco to these exhausted soldiers. And these men were rough. I mean, they were the ones in the trenches. If you know anything about World War One, you know that they would sit in these trenches for hours and days at a time. They would be bombed. They would be sitting next to the bodies of soldiers who had been shot, who they couldn't retrieve. There are rats in those trenches. There is lice in those trenches. There is disease and all kinds of horrors and just the worst things you can imagine are there. And when they would get off the trench schedule, they'd come back to this canteen. Can you imagine what talking to men like that would be? These dirty, unhappy people. How, you know, they're not going to come in in a good mood and they're going to be carrying all kinds of who knows what with them. Yet you can also imagine what a godsend someone like Machen and the YMCA probably seemed like to these men after they experienced what they experienced, just a little tiny shred of something good out there in just a really bleak situation. Machen said that he never got any rest. In fact, he said that the YMCA guys got less rest than the soldiers who would sometimes be, you know, taken off the front lines and given rest. The YMCA guys were always on. And he said if you did get to sleep, it'd only be for three to four hours at a time. Oftentimes, you would be woken up to the sound of sirens, warning of a chemical attack, or the sound of airplanes flying overhead, fighting, or, you know, looking out and spying the encampments. And so you just never felt like you slept at all. Yeah, there's this story during the war where him and his teammates found out that their army had retreated and that their camp, their hut, was now in enemy territories, and they had to get across this bridge to get back to their own army before the Germans essentially blocked them off because the Germans were blowing up the one bridge that they needed to get back to their army, and so it's this race to get back across the bridge back to your own army before they can blow up that bridge and either kill or capture you. So he's he's it, it running with the soldiers here, getting back. He was close enough to be diving out of the way of shells that were coming in. He was getting rained on by debris. And I mean, these YMCA teams also were some of the first on the battlefield to help clean up the battlefields and survey them for wounded soldiers that have been there. And so he's seeing some of probably the most grotesque horrors of war that have ever existed. Bodies that have been blown apart from shelling, slaughtered by machine gun fire, cut down by machine gun fire, blown up by mines, you know, soldiers that have been stabbed and, and cut up by bayonet fights. And, and so some serious psychological, uh, you know, PTS type stuff that they're dealing with on those battlefields. Although he never shot a bullet himself, he was considered a non-combatant in a who served in a combatant zone. In 1921, France honored him with a Medal of Honor for his service of serving over six months in a combatant zone. Um, and it was not like he was wildly successful either. He had gone there to teach Bible studies and the gospel while on the front lines, if you remember. He said the soldiers were just hardened and they had little interest in the gospel. Uh, this professor who would once teach schoolrooms where every student was hanging on his every word, now he was teaching not uncommonly to groups of two. 
And for example, there's this one story. This one got to me, I think, more than some of the other stuff, really. There's this troop of soldiers that come in, and they're American, and they have a chapel, a chaplain and everything. And he's, he's going to hold a whole worship service for them. He's so excited. The troop's chaplain would do the morning service, and he would hold the evening service. It'd be this great thing, right? So, you know, this is what he'd been planning. He finally had a chance to teach some people. But when he wakes up the next day to attend the Sunday worship where the chaplain was going to be, the, the troops are gone. They've been relocated uh, his evening service that he had been all excited for and playing. It was just him and a couple other soldiers and uh, not the troop that he had been there. I think it's easy to hear all this and just go, wow, that's pretty cool that he kept the faith. But it's it's more than you know that. It's a heartbreaking situation. Many people had their faith crushed by World War One, shattered on the horrifying battlefields of one of the worst wars up until that point, and still one of the worst wars that ever happened. People couldn't believe in the goodness of God that they had been taught in after this war and after serving in this war. Machen, who had gone over to be an aide and to have a successful ministry, was not able to reach many of these people. Yeah, when he came back from war, I mean, he's a, he's a different man. Things changed in his life. Before, he was against theological liberalism for sure, but after seeing the horrors of the war, after seeing you know how soldiers handled religion on the battlefield, he was staunchly against it, willing to fight tooth and nail against theological liberalism. He really believed it was one of the greatest threats to the gospel, and now he was more confident, knew how to handle himself, knew knew that this was something that was worth fighting to to keep out of the church. When he was over in the front lines, he talked about how all of the services there were either Roman Catholic or more theological liberal gatherings. And all of them were pretty much empty by the end of the war after seeing the, the horrors of war. It cleared out the, the, the few believers that were there. You know, we were speaking of instances that would depress you. This one might, in some ways, actually be even worse. It's one thing when the soldiers are so depressed and hardened that they don't want to hear about God. But there was another instance he had where he was trying to get a service together, and they had to move it. But they had to move it because the soldiers were so busy rowdily playing a baseball game next door. They were so loud, cheers were so much, that nobody could hear the service. And so the few people that came to attend the service, he had to move it across the military camp to have a worship service somewhere else. Again, there's just something about that that would just feel so discouraging to me because it's not, it's one thing, again, you're so sad, you don't believe in God, I get that. It's another thing when you're just having too much fun to care. Yet, in the letter at the end of the war, he wrote with excitement that despite the difficulties, he had not given up because he had hoped to have a Bible study. Is what he wrote to like his mom back home. He's like, hey, you know what? It's good news, though. I might have a Bible study tonight with two or three men at the edge of camp. And to me, I'd view that as, wow, that in human terms, this seems like a failure. But Machen was excited that the gospel was making progress, even if it was just in a few. That tenacity, that desire, that, that same thing that would drive him in those trenches and during those tough times would also be used by God in him to fight for the faith in all these intellectual and university ways later on. It was that same belief that what he believed in was real that would make him such a good apologetics professor. Maybe he was successful in World War I, or maybe not, but the man that God created while he was there, despite being halfway through his life, despite being, you know, seeing some of the worst moments of his life, would be a man who was strong enough for the challenges that were ahead. He had seen with his own eyes the reality of human suffering and depravity on a scale that most of us will hopefully, Lord willing, never see. But he also had the memories of small Bible studies on the edge of man's worst sins, right next to those horrible, sad fields of death where God was praised and remembered by a handful of people. This sermon that we're about to listen to is a defense of the deity of Christ. When so many had given up on God, when God had been attacked by all sides, when he was having to look at people and having to defend his faith and his belief in Christ, he came up with these reasons and these understandings and said, you know, if you understand that the resurrection is true, it changes everything. And this isn't written and spoken by a man who spent every day in a, you know, a university reading a book, although there's nothing wrong with that. But this is a man who did that, but then also went and lived it on a battlefield, truly believing it. And now coming back, defending his faith, saying, this is what I believe in. So 
Some 1900 years ago, in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire, there lived one that to a casual observer might seem to be a remarkable man. Up to the age of about 30 years, he lived an obscure life in the midst of a humble family. Then he began a remarkable course of ethical and religious teaching, accompanied by a ministry of healing. At first, he was very popular. Great crowds followed him gladly. The intellectual men of his people were interested in what he had to say. But his teaching presented revolutionary features, and he did not satisfy the political expectations of the populace. And so, before long, after some three years, he fell a victim to the jealousy of the leaders of his people and the cowardice of the Roman governor. He died the death of the criminals of those days on the cross. At his death, the disciples whom he had gathered about him were utterly discouraged. In him they had centered all their loftiest hopes. And now that he was taken away from them by a shameful death, their hopes were shattered. They fled from him in cowardly fear in the hour of his need, and an observer would have said that never was a movement more hopelessly dead. These followers of Jesus had evidently been far inferior to him in spiritual discernment and in courage. They had not been able, even when he was with them, to understand the lofty teachings of their leader. So now that he was dead, how could they possibly continue it? The movement depended, one might have said, too much on one extraordinary man, so that when he was taken away, then surely the movement was dead. But then the astonishing thing happened. The plain fact, which no one doubts, is that those same weak, discouraged men who had just fled in the hour of their master's need and who were altogether hopeless on account of his death, suddenly began in Jerusalem a few days after their master's death what is certainly the most remarkable spiritual movement the world has ever seen. At first, the movement re remained within the limits of the Jewish people. But soon it broke the bands of Judaism and began to be planted in all the great cities of the Roman world. Within 300 years, the empire itself had been conquered by the Christian faith. But this movement was begun in those few decisive days after the death of Jesus. What was it that caused this striking change in those weak, discouraged disciples? What made them the spiritual conquerors of the world? Well, historians are, are perfectly agreed that something must have happened. Something decisive even after the death of Jesus in order to begin this new movement. It was not just an ordinary continuation of the influence of Jesus' teaching. The modern historians at least agree that, that some striking change took place after the death of Jesus and before the beginning of the Christian missionary movement. They agree also, to some extent, even about the question of what the change was. They agree in holding that, that this new Christian movement was begun by the belief of the disciples in the resurrection of Jesus. They even agree in holding that in the minds and hearts of the disciples, there was formed the conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead. Of course, that was not formally admitted by everyone. It used to be maintained in the early days of modern skepticism that the disciples of Jesus only pretended that he had risen from the dead. Such ideas have long ago been placed in the limbo of discarded theories. The, the disciples of Jesus, the intimate friends of Jesus, in a short time after his death, came to believe honestly that he had risen from the dead. The only difference of opinion comes when we ask, what in turn produced this belief? Well, the New Testament answer to this question is perfectly plain. According to the New Testament, the disciples believed in the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus really, after his death, came out of the tomb and appeared to them. He held extended discussions with them so that their belief in the resurrection was simply based on fact. Of course, this explanation is rejected by those modern men who are unwilling to recognize in the origin of Christianity an entrance of the creative power of God. This breaks from the laws which operate in nature. Since so, another explanation has been proposed. It is that the belief of the disciples in the resurrection was produced by certain hallucinations in which they thought they saw Jesus, their teacher, and heard, perhaps, words of his ringing in their ears. A hallucination is a phenomenon well-known to students of pathology. In a hallucination, the, the optic nerve is affected, and the patient therefore does actually, in one sense, see someone or something. 
but this effect is produced not by an external object, but by the pathological condition of the subject himself. That is the view of the appearances of the risen Christ, which is held today by those who reject the miraculous in connection with the origin of Christianity. It is also believed that what was decisive in the resurrection faith of the early disciples was the impression which they had received of Jesus' person. Without that impression, it is thought that they could never have those pathological experiences which they called appearances of the risen Christ. So that those pathological experiences were merely the necessary form in which the continued impression of Jesus' person made itself felt in the life of the first disciples. But, after all, on this hypothesis, the resurrection faith of the, of the disciples upon which the Christian church is founded was really based on a pathological experience in which the men thought that they saw Jesus. And maybe they heard perhaps a word or two of his ringing in their ears when there was nothing in the external world to make them think that they were in his presence. Even before these, there, there have always been other explanations. It used to be held at times that the disciples came to believe in the resurrection because Jesus was not really dead. When he was placed in the cool air of the tomb, he revived and came out, and the disciples thought that they, he had arisen. A noteworthy scholar of today is said to have revived this theory because he is dissatisfied with the prevailing ideas. But the great majority of scholars today believe that this faith of the disciples was caused by hallucinations, which are called appearances of the risen Lord. But let us examine the New Testament account of the resurrection of Jesus and of the related events. This account is remembered specifically in six of the New Testament books. Of course, all the New Testament books presuppose the resurrection, and witnesses born to it in all of them. But there are six of these books, above all others, which provide the details of the resurrection. These are the four Gospels, the book of Acts, and the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. According to these six books, if their testimonies are put together, Jesus died on a Friday. His body was not allowed to remain and decompose on the cross, but was buried that same evening. He was placed in a grave chosen by the leader of the people, a member of the Sanhedrin. His burial was witnessed by certain women. He remained in the grave during the Sabbath. But on the morning of the first day of the week, he arose. Certain women who came to the grave found it empty and saw angels who told them that he had risen from the dead. He appeared to these women. The grave was visited that same morning by Peter and the beloved disciple. In the course of the day, Jesus appeared to Peter. In the evening, he appeared to two unnamed disciples who were walking to Emmaus. And apparently, later on the same evening, he appeared to all the apostles, save Thomas. Then a week later, he appeared again to the apostles, Thomas being present. Then he appeared in Galilee, as we learn from Matthew 28. And Paul is probably mentioning this same appearance when he says that he appeared to above 500 brethren at once in 1 Corinthians 15.6. It was probably then also that he appeared to the seven disciples on the Sea of Galilee, John 21. Then he appeared in Jerusalem and ascended from the Mount of Olives. Sometime in the course of the appearances, there was one to James, his own brother, according to 1 Corinthians 15.7, and later on he appeared to Paul. Such is the New Testament account of the resurrection appearances of our Lord. There are two features of this account to which great prominence has been given in recent discussion. The first is the place, and then the character of the appearances of Jesus. According to the New Testament, the place was first Jerusalem, then Galilee, and then Jerusalem again. The appearances took place not only in Galilee and in Jerusalem, but in both Jerusalem and in Galilee, and the first appearance took place in Jerusalem. And as for the character of the appearances, they were, according to the New Testament, of a plain physical kind. In the New Testament, Jesus is represented even as sitting at tables with his disciples after his resurrection. He engages in rather extended discussions with them. There is, it is true, something mysterious about this dialogue. It is not just a continuation of the old Galilean relationship. Jesus' body is independent of conditions of time and space in a way that appeared only rarely in his previous ministry. So there was a change, but there is also continuity. The body of Jesus came out of the tomb and appeared to the disciples in such a way that a man could put his finger in the mark 
of the nails in his hands. In two spots, this account is contradicted by modern scholars. In the first place, the character of the appearances is supposed to have been different. The disciples of Jesus, it is accused, saw him just for a moment in glory, and perhaps heard a word or two ringing in their ears. Of course, this was not, according to the modern naturalistic historians, a real seeing and hearing, but just the hallucination. But the point is that those who regard these appearances as hallucinations are not able to take the New Testament account and prove from it that these appearances were hallucinations, that they were not founded upon the real presence of the body of Jesus. Instead, they are obliged first to reduce the New Testament account to manageable proportions. The reason is that there are limits to hallucinations. No sane men could think that they had extended companionship with one who was not really present, or could believe that they had walked with him and talked with him after his death as a group. You cannot enter upon the modern explanation of those happenings as genuine experiences, but at the same time merely visions, until you modify the account that is given of the appearances themselves. And if this modified account is true, there must be a great deal in the New Testament account that is pure legend. You will have to say this if you are going to explain these appearances as hallucinations. So, there is a difference concerning the nature of the appearances according to modern reconstructions against the New Testament account. And there is a difference also concerning the place of the appearances. According to the customary modern view of naturalistic historians, the first appearances took place in Galilee and not in Jerusalem. But what is the importance of that difference of opinion? It looks at first sight as though if it were a mere matter of detail. But in reality, it is profoundly important for the whole modern reconstruction. If you are going to explain these experiences as hallucinations, the necessary psychological conditions must have prevailed in order for the disciples to have had the experiences. Therefore, modern historians are careful to allow time for the profound discouragement of the disciples to disappear, for the disciples to return to Galilee and to live again in the same scenes where they had lived with Jesus, to muse upon him and to be ready to have these visions of him. Time must be permitted, and the place must be favorable. And then there is another important element. We come here to one of the most important things of all, the empty tomb. If the first appearances were in Jerusalem, why didn't the disciples or the enemies investigate the tomb and refute this belief, finding the body of Jesus still there? This argument is thought to be refuted by the Galilean hypothesis regarding the first appearances. If the first appearances took place not till weeks afterward and in Galilee, this mystery is suddenly explained. There would be no opportunity to investigate the tomb until it was too late to go open it. And so the matter could have been allowed to pass, and the resurrection faith could have arisen. Of course, this explanation is not quite satisfactory. Because one cannot see how the disciples would not have been motivated to investigate the tomb whenever and wherever the appearances took place. We have not quite explained the empty tomb even by the Galilean hypothesis. But you can still understand the insistence of the modern writers that the first appearances took place in Galilee. So, there is a difference between the modern historian and the New Testament account in the matters of the manner and of the place of these experiences. Were these accounts of such a kind that they could be explained as hallucinations, or were they of such a kind that they could only be regarded as real appearances? Was the first appearance three days after Jesus' death and near the tomb, or later on in Galilee? Let us come now to the New Testament account. The first source that we should consider is the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. It is probably the earliest of the sources, but what is still more important, the authorship and the date of this particular source of information has been agreed upon by even the opponents of Christianity. So this is not only a source of first-rate historical importance, but it is a source of admitted importance even by its enemies. We have here a fixed starting point in all controversy. We must examine then this document with some care. 
It was probably written, roughly speaking, about 55 AD, about 25 years after the death of Jesus. It's about as long after the death of Jesus as 1924 is after the Spanish-American War, which ended in 1898. That is not such a very long period of time. And of course, there is one vital element in the testimony here which does not prevail in the case of the Spanish War. Most people have forgotten many details of the Spanish-American War because they have not constantly talked about it and preached about it and written about it. But it would not be so in the case of Jesus' resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus was the thing which formed the basis of all the thoughts of early Christians, and so the memory of it when it was 25 years past was very much fresher than the memory of an event like the Spanish-American War of 25 years ago, something which has passed out of our consciousness. Let us turn then to 1 Corinthians 15 and read the first verses. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved. If you keep in memory what I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. First of all, or among the first things, may mean first in point in time or first in point of importance. At any rate, this was a part of Paul's fundamental preaching in Corinth, in about the year 51 or 52. So we go back a little further than the time when the epistle was written, but these things were evidently also first and fundamental in Paul's preaching in other places, so that you are taken back an indefinite period in the ministry of Paul for this evidence. But then you are taken back by the words farther still. Quote, that which I also received... There is a common argument as to the source from which Paul received this information. It is generally agreed that he received it from the Jerusalem church. According to the epistle to the Galatians, he had been in conference with Peter and James only three years after his conversion. That was the time for Paul to receive this tradition. Historians are usually willing to admit that this information is nothing less than the account which the primitive church, including Peter and James, gave of the events which lay at the foundation of the church. So you have here, even in the admission of modern men, a piece of historical information of priceless value. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Why does Paul mention the burial of Jesus? The impression which the mention of the burial produces upon every reader who comes to it as for the first time is that Paul means to say that the body of Jesus was laid in the tomb. The burial, in other words, implies the empty tomb. And yet, a great many modern historians say that Paul knows nothing about the empty tomb. Surely such an assertion is quite false. Paul does not indeed explicitly mention the empty tomb. He does not give a detailed description of it here. But that does not mean that he knew nothing about it. Those that he was writing to believe in it already, and he is simply reviewing a previous argument in order to draw implications from it with regard to the resurrection of Christians. To say that Paul knows nothing about the empty tomb ignores the fact that the mention of the burial is quite meaningless unless Paul had in mind the empty tomb. I do not see how anyone can get any other impression. Moreover, isn't this what the definition of resurrection means? Modern historians say that Paul was interested simply in the continued life of Jesus in a new body, which had nothing to do with the body which lay in the tomb. That is rather strange in this connection. Paul is arguing in this passage not against men who denied the immortality of the soul, but against men who held the Greek view of the immortality of the soul without the body. The view that they were holding would logically make the resurrection of Jesus just the simple continuance of his personal life. There's no point at all then in what Paul says against them, unless he is referring to the resurrection from the tomb. Unless he is referring to this, he is playing into the hands of his opponents. But many men nowadays have such a strangely unhistorical notion of what resurrection meant to the early disciples. They talk as though the resurrection faith meant that those disciples simply believed that Jesus continued to exist after his crucifixion. This is absurd. There is not the slightest doubt about that. They were thoroughly imbued with this belief. 
They were not Sadducees. Even in those first three days after Jesus' crucifixion, they still believed that he was alive. If that is all that resurrection meant, there was nothing in it to cause joy. Conviction of the continued life of Jesus would not make him any different from other men. But what changed sadness into joy and brought about the founding of the church was the substitution for a belief in the continued existence of Jesus to a belief in the emergence of his body from the tomb. And Paul's words imply that as clear as day. Quote, and he rose again the third day, end quote. Of all the important things that Paul says, this is perhaps the most important from the point of view of modern discussion. There are few words in the New Testament that are more disconcerting to modern naturalistic historians than the words, on the third day. We have just observed what modern reconstruction is. The disciples went back to Galilee, it is supposed, and there, sometime after the crucifixion, they came to believe that Jesus was alive. But if the first appearance took place on the third day, this explanation is not possible. The modern reconstruction disappears altogether if you believe that the first appearances were on the third day. If Paul's words are to be taken at their face value, the whole elaborate psychological reconstruction of the conditions in the disciples' minds leading to up to the hallucinations in Galilee disappears. Many men, it is true, have an answer ready. Let us not, they say in effect, go beyond what Paul actually says. Paul does not say that the first appearances occurred on the third day, but only that Christ rose on that day. He might have risen sometime before he appeared to them. The resurrection might have occurred on the third day, and, and yet the appearances might have occurred some weeks after in Galilee. But why, if nothing in particular happened on the third day, and, and if the first appearance occurred some weeks after, the disciples hit upon just the third day as the day of the supposed resurrection? Surely it was very strange for them to suppose that Jesus had really risen a considerable time before he appeared to them and had left them all that time in their despair. So strange a supposition on the part of the disciples surely requires an explanation. Why was it, if nothing happened on the third day, that the disciples ever came to suppose that the resurrection occurred on that day and not on some other day? One proposed view is that the third day was hit upon as the day of the supposed resurrection because Scripture was thought to require it. Paul says it will be remembered that Jesus rose the third day according to the Scriptures. But where will you find in the Old Testament scriptures any clear reference to the third day as the day of the resurrection of Christ? No doubt there is the sign of Jonah, and there is also Hosea 6.2. We are certainly not denying that these passages, at least the former, are true prophecies of the resurrection of the third day. But could they ever have been understood before the fulfillment had come? That is more than doubtful. Indeed, it is not even quite clear that Paul means the words, according to the scriptures, to refer to the third day at all and not merely to the central fact of the resurrection itself. At any rate, the scripture passages never could have suggested the third day to the disciples unless something had actually happened on that day to indicate that Christ had risen. But had not Jesus himself predicted that he would rise on the third day, and, and might not this prediction have caused the disciples to suppose that he had risen on that day, even if the first appearances did not occur until long afterwards? This is an obvious way out of the difficulty, but it is effectively closed to the modern naturalistic historian, for it would require us to suppose that Jesus' predictions of his resurrection, recorded in the Gospels, are historical. But the naturalistic historians are usually concerned with few things more than with the denial of the authenticity of these predictions. According to ordinary liberal views, Jesus certainly could not have predicted that he would rise from the dead in the manner recorded in the Gospels. So for the liberal historians, this explanation of the third day becomes impossible. The explanation would perhaps explain the third day in the belief of the disciples, but it would also destroy the whole account of the liberal Jesus. So then, it becomes necessary to seek explanations further into the distance. Some have appealed to a supposed belief in antiquity to the effect that the soul of a dead person hovered around the body for three days and then departed. This belief, it is said, might have seemed to the disciples to make it necessary to put the supposed resurrection not later than the third day. But how far did this belief prevail in Palestine in the first century? 
The question is perhaps not capable of any truly satisfactory answer. Moreover, it is highly dangerous from the point of view of the modern naturalistic historian to appeal to this belief, since it would show that some interest was taken in the body of Jesus. And yet, this is what these modern historians are most concerned to deny. For if interest was taken in the body, the old question arises again why the tomb was not investigated, and the whole vision hypothesis breaks down. Since these explanations have proved unsatisfactory, some modern scholars have had to go back and find a fourth explanation. There were, in ancient times, they say to us, a pagan belief about a god who died and rose again. On the first day, the worshippers of the god were to mourn, but on the third day they were to rejoice because of the resurrection of the god. So it is thought that the disciples may have been influenced by this pagan belief, but surely this is a desperate and convenient excuse. It is only a very few students of the history of religions who would be quite so bold as to believe that in Palestine, at the time of Christ, there was any prevalence of this pagan belief with its dying and rising God. Indeed, the importance and clearness of this belief have been enormously exaggerated in recent works, particularly as regards the rising of the God on the third day. The truth is that the third day in the primitive account of the resurrection of Christ remains, and that there is no satisfactory way of explaining it away. Indeed, some naturalistic historians are actually coming back to the view that perhaps we cannot explain this third day away, and that perhaps something did happen on the third day to produce the faith of the, of the disciples. But if this conclusion is reached, then the whole psychological reconstruction disappears, and particularly the modern hypothesis of about the place of the appearances. Something must have happened to produce the disciples' belief in the resurrection not far off in Galilee, but near to the tomb in Jerusalem. But if so, there would be no time for the elaborate psychological processes which are supposed to have produced the visions, and there would be ample opportunity for the investigation of the tomb. It is therefore a fact of enormous importance that it is just Paul, in the passage where he is admittedly reproducing the tradition of the primitive Jerusalem church, who mentions the third day. Then, after mentioning the third day, Paul gives a detailed account which is not quite complete of the resurrection appearances. He leaves out the accounts of the appearances to the women because he is merely giving the official list of the appearances to the leaders in the Jerusalem church. And so, we have the testimony of Paul. The testimony is sufficient of itself to refute the modern naturalistic reconstruction. But it is time to glance briefly at the testimony in the Gospels, too. If you take the shortest gospel, the gospel according to Mark, you will find, for starters, that Mark gives his account of the burial, which is of great importance. Modern historians cannot deny that Jesus was buried, because that is attested by the universally accepted source of information, 1 Corinthians 15. Mark is here confirmed by the Jerusalem tradition as preserved by Paul. But the account of the burial in Mark is followed by the account of the empty tomb, and the two things are indissolubly connected. If one is historical, it is difficult to reject the other. Modern naturalistic historians are divided about this matter of the empty tomb. Some admit that the tomb was empty. Others deny that it ever was. Some say what we have just outlined, that the tomb was never investigated at all until it was too late, and that the account of the empty tomb grew up as a legend in the church. But other historians are clear-sighted enough to see that you cannot get rid of the empty tomb in any such fashion. But if the tomb was empty, why was it empty? The New Testament says that it was empty because the body of Jesus had been raised out of it. But if this was not the case, then why was the tomb empty? Some say that the enemies of Jesus took the body away. If so, they have done the greatest possible service to the resurrection faith which they so much hated. Others have said that the disciples stole the body away to make the people believe that Jesus was risen. But no one holds that view anymore. Others have said that Joseph of Arimathea changed the place of burial. That is difficult to understand because if such were the case, why should Joseph of Arimathea have kept silent when the resurrection faith arose? Other explanations no doubt have been proposed, but it cannot be said that these hypotheses have altogether satisfied even those historians who have proposed them. The empty tomb has never been successfully explained away. We might go on to consider the other accounts, but I think we have pointed out some of the most important parts of the evidence. 
the resurrection was of a bodily kind, and appears in connection with the empty tomb. It is quite a misrepresentation of the state of affairs when people talk about interpreting the New Testament in accordance with the modern view of natural law as operating in connection with the origin of Christianity. What is really being engaged in is not an interpretation of the New Testament, but a complete contradiction of the New Testament at its central core. In order to explain the resurrection faith of the disciples as caused by hallucinations, you must first pick and choose in the sources of information, and then reconstruct a statement of the case of for which you have no historical information. You must first reconstruct this account, different from that which is given by the only sources of information, before you can even begin to explain the appearances as hallucinations. And even then, you are really no better off. It is, after all, quite preposterous to explain the origin of the Christian church as being due to pathological experiences of weak-minded men. So mighty a building was not founded upon so small a pinpoint. So the witness of the whole New Testament has not been explained away. It alone explains the origin of the church and the change of the disciples from weak men into the spiritual conquerors of the world. Why is it then, if the evidence is so strong, that so many modern men refuse to accept the New Testament testimony of the resurrection of Christ? The answer is perfectly plain. The resurrection, if it is true, is a stupendous miracle, and against the miraculous or the supernatural there is a tremendous opposition in the modern mind. But is the opposition well-grounded? It would perhaps be well-grounded if the direct evidence for the resurrection stood absolutely alone, if it were simply a question of whether a man in the first century, otherwise unknown, really rose from the dead. There would, in that case, be a strong burden of proof against the belief in the resurrection. But, as a matter of fact, the question is not whether any ordinary man rose from the dead, but whether Jesus rose from the dead. We know something of Jesus from the Gospels, and as such made known, he is certainly different from all other men. A man who comes into contact with his tremendous personality will say to himself, it is impossible that Jesus could ever have been held by death. When the extraordinary testimony of the resurrection faith which has been outlined above comes to us, we add to this our tremendous impression of Jesus' person gained from the reading of the Gospels, and we accept this strange belief which comes to us and fills us with joy. That the Redeemer really triumphed over death, the grave, and sin. And if he is living, we can come to him today. And so finally, we add to the direct historical evidence our own Christian experience. If he is a living Savior, we can come to him for salvation today. And we add to the evidence from the New Testament documents an immediacy of conviction which delivers us from fear. The Christian man should never say, as men often say, because of my experience of Christ in my soul, I am independent of the basic facts of Christianity. I am independent of the question whether Jesus rose from the grave or not. But Christian experience, even though it cannot be our proof of whether Jesus rose or not, still can add to the direct historical evidence a confirming witness today. That, as a matter of fact, Christ really did rise from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. The witness of the Spirit is not, as it is often quite falsely represented today, independent of the Bible. On the contrary, it is a witness by the Holy Spirit, who is the author of the Bible, to the fact that the Bible is true. These men who were the least likely people to spread the religion of Jesus Christ, the least likely people to bring his teaching to the world, did. And there must be some reason for that. It's really interesting to me if you listen to this sermon in defense of the resurrection of Christ and, and who he was, you've got, if you're like me, you're listening to it and going, this sounds like the exact same stuff I hear today. The arguments against their faith are not really that new. They're actually kind of the same old arguments. And, you know, I've read, uh, the Age of Reason by Thomas Paine, and it's the same thing he said a hundred years before Machen. It's it's just the same stuff. And so what Machen lays out here is it just doesn't make sense that the apostles 
would have done this if Jesus Christ had not resurrected to them. And if he did, then we should listen to what he said. I think this sermon is great. I think it's a good reminder. You can get in, in apologetics and stuff like that, what you can get boiled down to these little things off to the side. But at the end of the day, our faith boils down to the resurrection. Machen had seen some of the worst stuff in human history, but he still believed that the resurrection was worth fighting for. In fact, he fought for it even more firmly after seeing the worst things of human history because he knew how important that faith was to preserving who you were and to preserving what God was doing in your life. If you didn't have that, if you couldn't stand firm on the word, you would lose yourself. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Class. Today's sermon was narrated by Ken Chipchase. Ken is the planting pastor for Pillar Fellowship in Southern Indiana and co-host of the Do Theology podcast. You can check out his show and learn more at dotheology.com. We began this episode thanking some of our Patreon supporters, and we really recommend if you are not one to join up, you can listen to deep dive episodes like the recently created Joan of Arc. You can listen to the First Crusades. You can listen to the Salem Witch Trials. You can listen to an ad-free feed. You get signed bookmarks from us. You get stickers from us. You also get a shout out on our episodes, and we you get our thanks. We are very grateful to all of you who are supporting us on Patreon, and we are also very grateful to all of you who are considering it. We do hope that you will. It does go a long ways to helping us create these shows, uh, all the shows that we have here, Revive Devos and Martyrs and Missionaries too. And so, yeah, we really hope you would check it out and think about doing that. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.